Earlier this month, Stephen Colbert made an announcement about his band. In the meantime, folks, I've got news about our dear friend John Batiste. John Batiste was leaving, and Louis Cato would be the new musical director. Well, I have an update. John has decided to leave the show. But we're happy for you, John, and I can't wait to have you back on as a guest with your next hit record. I love you. But as happy, as happy as I am for John, I am thrilled for us because I have the privilege to announce that this incredible band is staying right there and that our new band leader is the one, the only, Mr. Louis Cato, ladies and gentlemen. For some people, Louis Cato is not a familiar name. In fact, he's been hiding in plain sight for years now, both as a member of the Late Show Stay Human Band and also as what he himself referred to as a super sideman, working with, I promise, at least one of your favorite artists and likely more than that. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. I spoke to Louis Cato for this podcast back in 2018, and since then he's achieved so much. But even back then, he was in his early 30s when we first met, as opposed to now when he's in his mid-30s, I guess. Even back then he had racked up an almost impossibly diverse and impressive list of credits. See, Louis Cato is living proof that some people are simply given a gift. Born in Lisbon, Portugal, and raised mostly in North Carolina, Lewis began playing drums at age two. By the time he started high school, he was a credible drummer, bassist, guitarist, trombone, and tuba player. He found his way deeper and deeper into music, despite the fact that, as he says, he was raised in a bubble. Lewis didn't hear secular music until he was almost 18 years old, but the music he did learn in church and the music he played in the church with his mother gave him a deep foundation. When he did eventually hear the music and the musicians that would come to inform his professional journey, he quickly understood that he had a place in that world. And soon he was playing with the likes of Marcus Miller, John Schofield, Q-Tip, Snarky Puppy, John Baptiste, Bobby McFerrin, and more. He joined the Late Show Band when Colbert took over the job as host back in 2015, and he's been a regular on the show ever since. And of course, last week he became the musical director. After Lewis and I met for this interview back in 2018, we had a chance to spend more time together, both socially and musically. And I have to echo what Colbert said in his announcement last week. Lewis Cato is a genius. He is the real thing. In our interview, he told me that he thinks his biggest gift is his ears, the way he hears into music. And that may be, but I can tell you that his hands, his voice, his head, and his heart are also doing some serious work, too. So in honor of his new gig as the band leader of the Late Show Band, I'm rerunning that episode from 2018 so you can get to know Louis Cato a little better. We talked about the difference between making music in church and playing secular music, what it means to learn what you already know, and how surviving a terrible tour bus accident changed his outlook on life and music. And I just want to add a, a kind of a memory that I've had about this episode ever since it ran, which was that when I got to his studio in Brooklyn in Gowanus to talk to him those years ago, I remember he was eating a kale salad. And rather than waiting for him to finish eating the salad, I let him eat it while we were talking. It always drove me crazy that uh, you can hear him chewing a little bit at the beginning of the conversation. And subsequently, a handful of musicians reached out to me who heard the episode, and they said their favorite part was the kale salad. So it goes to show you never know what's going to uh, endure over the course of history. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Louis Cato from 2018. Our mutual friend, Michael Thurber, who's yeah. just been talking about Dude. you like crazy. Man, you got to tell me, how do you, how do you know Thurber? 
I met Michael Thurber when he was, I think, at a period in his life where he was just reaching out to people. Mm-hmm. We had some mutual friends. I met his roommate at a at kind of a dinner party, and the next thing I know, I got this super enthusiastic email from Michael saying, "Man, these are the people that we know in common. And let's just hang out." And you know, like people don't come that real and yeah. like enthusiastic with love and enthusiasm from yeah. the beginning. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was the real thing. And so anyway, yeah. so we met for a drink, and like immediately. It just was love, you know, and mm. it's that year I met him, which was like maybe 2012 or 2013, we, I was making a bunch of records and I just called him for everything. Like for the ne- next six months, he just was playing bass on everything that I did. Which brings me to yeah. a question that, yeah, um, what, what do you do? Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's what, I, that's what I'm here to find out from you. <laughs> Speaking of Michael, it's funny because I saw Michael Thurber the other day at his Joe's Pub thing at his Thurber Theater. Oh, yeah. I saw him afterwards for a drink and, you know, everybody went to hang out afterwards and we, he and I were talking and he said to me, this thing that I think is like, I need to hear it and I need to tell people this and we all sort of need to remind ourselves. He said, like, you are raising a family on music. You have a roof over your head because of music. Like you are supporting yourself making music. Anybody that can survive from art, it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. You know? I feel lucky. And I, I, I remember that for sure. Mostly I remember when I when I had to validate myself and find a place of confidence talking to someone else. But You write about that a lot. I saw a video of you on your website where you're talking about how you write songs. And mm-hmm. one of the things that you said is... Oh, wow. I you reach into the air into the energy, the yeah. vibration of the room, and sometimes just the sound of whatever you're playing will kind of open up an idea for you. Absolutely. And lyrics kind of emerge from that. Absolutely. But you are writing into a specific pocket a lot, especially on, in this collection of records, and it is speaking very much to this conversation about coming to accept where you are in this moment, not worry about what other people are doing, I mean, yeah. that's what I feel from this record is yeah. like taking some ownership of this is where I'm at right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the direct parallel, which you'll understand, <laughs> was kind of transitioning from a, a sideman that always reasoned away creative endeavors for, oh, I don't have anything to say, hmm. uh, to realizing that I did have something to say and I do have opinions mm-hmm. and there's something to be said for the way that I hear music. The real parallel in my life path is just the uh literally that transition and all the the uphill internal battles along the way of like validity <laughs> you know which is really interesting that you, that you bring that point up because i really feel like it's funny like these songs are like a couple of years old now at least i realized at a show i had a show um some months ago and uh I don't remember. It was just a really hard day mm-hmm. with, I don't know, probably some like news of like songs that didn't get selected or stuff like that. And like, I don't know, I was really uh, not in a great headspace. But I got on stage and like, and I was kind of pushing through. And then I got to uh, look within. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started, you know, I started by myself actually on the live version. So uh, I sang like one line and I was just like, wow, this is. I'm actually really preaching to myself from the like past me two years ago mm-hmm. is is completely preaching to present me mm-hmm. right now. It was it's like I guess it's like you know it, sometimes it, it's literally like that. Well, right. It's like we have to learn what we already know. I mean, you knew enough to write that, but you're still learning from it today. You know. Yeah, 
over the years, I mean, songs like that run their cycles as you go, as yeah, they right. go yeah, through it'll life. Back, it'll mean different around. things yeah. at different times. It doesn't all entirely belong to you, even though it comes yes. out of you, you know? Yeah, well, it really comes through you. Yeah. Because, I mean, and especially like you were talking about this collection of songs, yeah. like, I'm, it, it is pulling it out of the air, but my lens is like, you know, you can kind of see where I'm at in life. This happened during a transition from being really defined as a sideman to feeling like you had some ownership over your own ideas. I, let's talk about your sideman life a little bit because yeah. you, I mean, I, I can't. <laughs> I, <laughs> but, I mean, what happened? I, I, I want to I wanna hear the whole thing, but like. Maybe maybe we need to go back. Let's let you know what. Let's just let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go, let's go all the way. <laughs> okay, you're born in Lisbon, Portugal. <laughs> My dad is in the military. Oh, so American family. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up in North Carolina. Uh huh. My mom grew up in Omaha. Yeah. The short version is that he was stationed in Portugal in the Air Force. In Lisbon, he had my older sister, and then two and a half years later, had me. And but we left like when I was three months old. Oh, I see. So I didn't get to dig in that hard, dig in that hard, <laughs> or at all, really. Right. So, do you have a Portuguese passport if you're born in Portugal? You know, um, the way it worked, the laws have changed a few times yeah. in my life. So, when I was 18, I had to do like a selective service thing because my my birth certificate is a certificate of birth abroad. So, so, as an American, were you born on the base? Um, that is a great question that I always forget. <laughs> and this is about the time I text my mom. Yeah. And she reminds me. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah that's right. But uh, <laughs> I want to say no. Yeah. The pictures I remember were like, because it was all like Portuguese doctors. Yeah. I remember that. The story she used to tell me every year was like everything, you know, the language gap was like a big thing. They didn't think she was trying hard enough. <laughs> Turns out I just had a big head. And but, it's carried um, you this far. Uh, <laughs> We'll see. Yeah, right. <laughs> the end remains to be soon. But we moved to Ohio when I was like three months old. Went to D.C. for a couple of years. My my That's when I started kindergarten. My dad retired. Um, and we went back to North Carolina to take care of his parents, my grandparents, when I was like five. So I mostly grew up in North Carolina. And your mom? My mom would stay at home mm-hmm. for most of my childhood. Later in life, when they split up, she... Um, did a few different things and is basically is now working like she's um, in like a at like a charter school. Were they musical? Was there music in the house? My mom's musical. My dad is wonderfully tone deaf. Mm-hmm. My mom grew up singing and playing piano um, in her church in Omaha, and uh, she's really gifted and plays by ear and spiritually aware. Right, and you played, like, and you heard a lot of music in church, right? I only heard music in church. Tell yeah. me, about, so tell me about that. That was that's an that's a really defining point of uh, of of my story is that we weren't allowed to listen to secular music, which was anything not Christian. So I'm still relatively new to so much of the things that I've found to be like, you know, my sort of home base, mm-hmm. like all these staples of music, James Brown and Miles Davis, and gosh, you couldn't my, listen to Miles Davis. No, we couldn't do that. even even jazz at that time was like a, a stretch, but that that kind of got a little looser as I was like in high school when they I, the college university that was uh, that my sister my older sister went to they let me would let me come and like play in the wind ensemble I would play tuba and euphonium in their wind ensemble and they let me play like bass and or drums right. and the jazz ensemble and I think around that time 
that got a little looser. Um, and was it music in church? Was it go basically gospel music or what kind of music was it? Uh, it's interesting. Like up until I was eight or nine, I, it was like really old stomp clap. It's like a small town in North Carolina. Yeah. So like real traditional, like, you know, before my mom and I moved, moved back there, like we were like, th there was like no music, you know, <laughs> it was like, wow. Uh, like, yeah, uh, you know, just literally like. You know, stop, clap. Glory, glory, hallelujah, since I laid my burden down. You know, mm -hmm. just you know, <laughs> 10 minutes later, friends, don't treat me like they used to since I laid my, you know, just burning down <laughs> burning down you know so okay man so you so really just the bare minimum just the body what the body could make that was what music was but then when i when i was like eight or nine i started going to another church which is a whole epic saga in and of itself it was like the, the opposite direction it was like like the more modern hill songsy worshipy pop kind of things. My mom came over with me, so then it was me and my mom and the pastor who played acoustic guitar. But that uh, brought the whole other side of things. And the ra then the radio, 91.9 FM. I wonder if that station is still, still there. I'm sure it is. That was like the contemporary Christian station. And where is it? Where in North like Carolina? Where in North Carolina? Albemarle. 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 Stanley County. Okay. Albemarle, North Carolina. And that's contemporary Christian music you're listening to there. Yes. So my brain is a dictionary yeah. of all that. It really, there's like one close friend of mine that's also a producer and also grew up in that world. Mm -hmm. Actually, do you, do you know Jeremy McDonald? No. Yeah, he's a great producer. But Jeremy uh, <laughs> had a similar upbringing. He all, he's like the one person that can point out like the specific like contemporary Christian references that in my... From, yeah. yeah. It definitely informed my the way that I hear music coming together as a producer. As an instrumentalist, I got so excited about... I mean, I, I, I definitely have that from, like, a lifetime of... from, like, 2 to 18. How is contemporary Christian music different? Or what are some of the things that you take from it, do you think, in your music today? Um, the things that I take with it in my music today are... I, I kind of envision it as a, as a sense of, of, of how things uh, fit and, and stack. Mm-hmm. Just foundationally, it's very pop. Yeah, you know, uh, it's very like everything's like in its in its right place, and you know, yeah, like who you were, know, who were the artists that you were? Who who were the artists? Oh gosh, the guys that were like like songs that like my head or like a dictionary of or like PFR, um, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Michael W. Smith, mm -hmm. for him, Point of Grace, the Newsboys, DC Talk. Gosh knows. Rich Mullins, one of my favorite songwriters. He died in a tragic, tragic uh, car accident uh, when I was a kid. Audio Adrenaline, that was a big one. That was a little more on the younger side, like the rockier side of things. Um, All right, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so much. <laughs> so, and when did you start playing instruments? When I was two. So apparently the story goes, my mom says that I was beaten on pots and pans in uh -huh. the cabinets <laughs> and she got my dad to 
get me a, a little drum set for my second birthday. Which is actually, I think about a lot now, and when I'm recanting these stories, mm -hmm. like the foresight to... Get you the drum set. Get me a drum set for my second birthday. Yeah. Because yeah. that, like, you know, I used to teach uh, when I was living in Boston for a while, and uh, it's, it's baffling, like, how many kids or, or, or adults come would come in and, like, oh, yeah, I always wanted to play drums, but, like, my parents wouldn't let me. Yes. It's too loud, you know? So I really kind of, I really appreciate she had the thought, oh, let's get him a drum set at two years old. Mm -hmm. But apparently I played every day, and I only wore, I would only practice in mittens. That was a thing, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could remember why. At the same time, my, 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 my mom had my sister and I singing in church. She would, like, teach us songs or whatever to sing in church. She would teach us at home, like, on the piano. and then we'd... So I was kind of singing and playing from two. And uh, growing up, it was, like, wherever church we were at it was generally just my mom and me she so she would play in church and you would be with her we would we would play together you would church. be the music you too would be the music yeah. in church she'd play like she the way she plays is just like heavy moving yeah. bass in the left hand and like which actually really influenced my bass playing as i realized later in life your mom's like, left hand on the piano is an influence in your bass playing oh strong First of all, because she didn't know how to play any other way. So when I started playing bass when I was nine, uh, I, was, I was eight. I got a bass for my ninth birthday, but I started, yeah. When I started playing, yeah. I was always just like, Mom, you're stepping on my toes, yeah. you know? And like, I feel it's foundation for yeah. me. And if ever, if ever you hear me playing bass and it's not foundational, I'm just, I'm either have had, yeah. I, I'm just, I, I, I either am checked out or yeah. just, Goofing around, yeah, right. <laughs> when I when I when I make music from the bass chair, mm -hmm. it's um it's, it's foundational. It's 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 kind of like you know when you hold your kid, like where you're mm -hmm. like you know like like how much strength I need to make sure that she doesn't like mm -hmm. hurt herself or like you know what I mean how hard I need to squeeze mm -hmm. on his hand, and which is a fluid thing, you know. Sometimes it it needs short. Sometimes it yeah. needs like. Long and and then holding and developing, you know, yes, developing. You know. So when you first started playing bass, right, you had to confront your mom's left hand. I did, I did, which actually ended up meaning like I kind of just learned it, you know, to defeat it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was just it's built into the way she plays. Sure. You know, if you if you're playing like bless that wonderful name of Jesus, <laughs> she's like do do like the the where she would approach and where she would double and you know so and wh I, where did she learn how to do that she's she's self-taught but she did grow up in the church of god in christ and i believe that i'm quoting her correctly when i say that twinkie clark was a big influence i don't on know her. who that is uh so are you familiar with the clark sisters no oh wow the Clark Please sisters are a staple in gospel music. They were kind of like I think maybe the most controversial and well publicized mm -hmm. crossover because mm -hmm. they have this song like "You Brought the Sunshine." Mm -hmm. It's like do 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 
The Clark family was like a, a like one of those phenom families mm-hmm. of like the all the girl all the women girls sang and mm-hmm. Maddie Moss was like the mom and she was like a taskmaster but like had these so they all think it's like perfect unisons like yeah. just freakish yeah things and Twinkie was a sister that like that like would like write kind of write the music I think yeah. and like she would play but she would play like Moog. Or bass and yeah. piano, like on the on the records and huh. stuff, or whatever. She was really uh, influenced by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. They, she would sneak it because they weren't allowed to listen to second music either. But so that came through to my mom. Well, it's funny because like when I was growing up, my father used to say, you know, the the thing about rhythm and blues is that they just changed Jesus to baby. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Turning, yeah. I would have to agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's why I ask: Is it musically different, or is that the foundation? That's the foundation from which rhythm and blues comes, though. Yes, yes, it is. I have friends that will probably shoot me down for not yeah. knowing this history any better. But generally speaking, I think in the question of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, it's probably the, the church, of course, because yeah. that was like out of like you know slavery. Which which directly like you know from spiritual elements like back in the motherland, yeah. you know. But see, what one of the reasons that's so interesting to me in t- in a in today's modern context is, and I find the people that I talk to that I'm often compelled to talk to are like you, people who spent time in and even thrived in to some extent the modern uh, educational industrial complex. But mm-hmm. who came with such natural musical talent that it wasn't necessarily the best place for them. Oh, yeah. I only lasted two semesters at Berkeley. But to what I'm starting to wonder is where the divergence in today's world is. You know, there's di- this space between the music that is taught in music schools mm-hmm. and the music that comes out of, I don't want to say authentic, but I'm going to say authentic, tra- yeah, 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 yeah. traditional place. Like you're you're picking up all this stuff like firsthand. This is like source material that you're getting. Your mom's left hand, yeah. the way this music feels in the church. Like mm-hmm. that's where you learned it. Now you end up in- later on interacting with all this like music school stuff too. Yeah. You know, you went to Berkeley and like a lot of musicians that you played with subsequently mm-hmm. came through North Texas and came through these mm-hmm, big music mm-hmm, schools. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing to me is a completely different background. The grass is always greener. Yeah. When I got to Berkeley, yeah. everyone that I met, or most of the people that I met came from like places where like there was a scene or there was someone that people they had like community uh, oh. people to look up to like, you know, like. A lot of the church musicians came from like big churches. Sure. And uh there'd be like circles of, of every instrument, like, you know, there's like two or three drummers like, you know, that are all waiting to get on and play or whatever and there's like a bit of like competition and like the OG that's like man that like that you they would look up to and But like, that's not your church from. experience. No. My church experience was like me being the only <laughs> me and my mom being the only musicians really. And then later, like a couple of years later, my pastor, when we started going to the other church, and that pastor played guitar, and so like it was you and your mom and your pa- and the pastor. That's what you were saying. That's yeah. That's what so I so, so I, that was a band. That was your experience of playing with a, with a band for the longest time. Yeah. It was you and your mom and the pastor. That's what it is to make music yeah. with other people. Mm-hmm. And then later, uh, when I was like, I want to say like sixteen, maybe there was a couple other churches that 
One, I, I would actually lead worship in for a while, Centerview Baptist Church. There, there was this church that was like down the street from my house, and that was Centerview, and uh, I would go and play with them sometimes, and they had like, you know, with the youth band, like they had like youth services, and so we would do that, and so that was another experience with like, a you know, some kid on drums and some kid on bass or not. Usually somebody hop on, on like drums and it was like, you know, kind of like youth vibes, yeah. like in a room like with cool black light lit and that's my memory serves. And then this other church. And you're, but you started leading worship also. Uh, yeah, I did for at, a while. At, yeah. At, at how old? Around that time, like 16, I want to say. And did you think about becoming a pastor? No, never. <laughs> never I'm never never <laughs> crossed my mind my soul my spirit uh-huh. I, I never never felt that on me I didn't but to be truthfully I didn't think about becoming a musician either I didn't know that there was you know that this world existed I kind of assumed you hadn't seen any, either we had you no model you had I no, thought I was going to teach tuba at Fife University <laughs> I thought I was going to take this I, I they were hinting at a scholarship and uh um and I'd already, you know, there's, that school was like 15 minutes down the road from my house. And I figured, well, I can take scholarship and then do school because that's what everybody does. And then teach because that's what any of the plays does. It's like, you know. And by 16, 17, were you a com- pretty accomplished as a drummer, as a bass player, as a as a horn player and as a guitar player? Were you kind of developed on all those instruments? As much as one could be with natural talent. But no real direction, no guidance. I had some guidance, like in the classical side of things, from Tom Smith. He was had been brought in by Pfeiffer University to run the music department during that time, and he he's like a world class trombonist and educator, Fulbright Scholar, and actually also my high school band director Chris Crumley, who would take me to like all the all state, all district, solo and ensemble kind of things, like in like. That world, so trombone to yeah, euphonium, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would do that. Okay, um, but as a rhythm section player, you are figuring this out by yourself. Completely. Are you listening to secular music at that point? No. You're still listening to all Christian music. Yes. And trying to reach into it and hear what is happening in the bass. What are these drummers doing? What is the guitar player doing? Yeah. What, and how then are I these do tracks it. Well, put together? Well, this is an interesting thing about my tick, if you will, yeah. <laughs> my own yeah. crazy my ears as is like my gift. The ironic thing to me is that I have this, um, people talk about all the instruments I play, and I kind of really feel like my only gift is my ears. And <laughs> it just translates accordingly differently. And through that, I've found, like I said, that I have things to say in different, very slightly varying identities on my instruments. But yeah, everything was relative. Mm-hmm. Like bass lines that that would ascend into like yeah. guitar yeah, lines, nice. but like where did that go? You know, like <laughs> well, some of that is like playing like an arranger. Basically, when you're whatever you're playing, understanding the service of the song. Like, always, always. That's a big part of my musical yeah. identity, and I think to yeah. jump back to a previous point yeah. of what the difference is between yeah. like the coming out of like the church yeah. into like this music today is that. There is a foundational element of priority. Yes. For the simple reason that, like, 
in theory at least, or what you're learning, what you're being taught is that it's not about you. You know? Yes. You have to support both the person who's leading worship and mm-hmm. also make it very obvious for the people in the room and let them know what their role is. Yeah. Well, I mean, make it very obvious is one way of saying it, I guess. Our approach was always like, you know, I guess well, biblically, the Levites, I guess, were like in the were like the tribe that would like usher the people in to worship and so like that was like always the approach was like we have a job to do we have to be so tuned in to the spirit uh, in the room and to the actual spirit of this thing so as to lead everyone else in and if you you didn't then like you you know what i mean you no i dig it and, and and in fact so that's why when you say it's really it's not about you it's like on the one level it's not about you overshadowing any other musician or any other element in the room but beyond that it's not about you like it's really not about you it's about something much bigger than you right that you are representing and maybe shepherding or helping helping happen in the room right absolutely 100 percent. that i think is a fundamental difference yeah because we talk about it you know oh music is spiritual or or we feel like as we're talking about writing lyrics it it doesn't always belong to you. It passes through you or the music Absolutely. that we write passes through you. We, I think in secular music, people talk about that, talk about it in those terms, but they wouldn't necessarily always say, I- I'm a conduit for something much larger than me and I'm just a representative of that thing Yeah, in the room. That's my job is to represent yeah. God, or represent yeah. you know, something that's much bigger than all of us here. And that's a huge responsibility, much more than just play good. You yeah. know? <laughs> it's a huge responsibility on the, on the internal front. Yeah. Uh, it's actually be- it's a bit of a less of a responsibility from like hmm. all the other stuff. I, I when I when I do shows with like my own shows, m- my voice is rarely like I generally I, as a thing like that I'm learning. I, generally, my voice never feels like it's at a hundred percent because I do so much and I don't sleep a lot, and mm-hmm. you know I'm aware of all these things, but. I can be aware of that and know that I'm not at a hundred percent. But if I'm able to like surrender and lead and like and trust and and Call get out down. of the way yeah. and that and and bring people into like a space, then I feel like I've done what I'm here to do. So was part of your thinking that you might not have something to say a result of the fact that you were talking about personal things and not talking about bigger things, or or was it just that you didn't have confidence yet in yourself as a songwriter? Early, I was not thinking of myself as a songwriter at all. So yeah. definitely no confidence there because I was just like, no, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> um, but I think the thing about not having anything to say comes more from uh, being aware that I grew up in a bubble. Which, by the way, gives you a lot to say. <laughs> right? If you grew up in a bubble, then by definition, you know a lot of stuff that nobody else knows because nobody else was in that bubble but you. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of one of these ideas. It's funny. <laughs> I've not thought of it like that until you pointed it out just now. <laughs> it's just amazing because I'm looking at your career and I'm going, man, look at all of these people that you played with. What a dream realized for so many for so many young musicians. But for you, you were in a bubble. You didn't you weren't like listening. it wasn't a dream. You were listening I, to Marcus I, Miller or John Schofield. You, yeah, you didn't that know was who they were. Much later. I got Marcus's record, I think, when I first, like, was 18. I did, 
There is a twist. I got when I was like, I want to say 17, and I was playing in that jazz, uh, the college jazz band. Uh-huh. Tom Smith, who, yep. who I told you about, he would hire ringers to come in and fill it out because it's a small town. Yeah. Meisenheimer, North Carolina, is almost even smaller than Albemarle, North Carolina. <laughs> the biggest thing was Pfeiffer, was a small Methodist college. But Tom Smith is like super ambitious. Mm-hmm. And so he would like, hire like these ringers that come in like from like 45 minutes an hour with them, mm-hmm. come from Charlotte or wherever and fill out the sections so that we can have a full like big band, you know? Yep. And one of those, Corey, I can't remember his last name, great trumpet player. Um, then he, I don't remember where he was coming from, yeah. but he's a major point in, uh, influence in my life because he was the guy, he was the guy that gave that after a rehearsal, like, yeah. Was like, man, you sound great, on, like on the on that bass, man. Yeah. You sound it's kind of sound like Jock got a little Jocko in you. And you don't. And I was like, who's what? The, <laughs> who's that? And he was he he was in such disbelief. Yes. He's like, come with me to my car right now. And he took me out to the parking lot. I'll never forget it. And he had two CDs. He had oh. Jocko's first record, yeah. and he had Victor Bailey's Low Blow. Yeah. And I learned every note on both those records. I w- it was just like an so oasis. What, so this is the moment I've been waiting for. So what, <laughs> so what happened in your brain when you heard those? I mean, was it a surprise Mind to you? blown. Was it blown? Mind blown. I spent hours, hours. I remember Saturdays like this in my room just like with the door closed because I don't know if I was really allowed to Hear listen this. to them yet. Because there's a, there's a few records like that too. I'll get to the other yeah. ones too because they're it's really interesting. Yeah. You'll probably hear a lot of me, yeah. me within the scope of them. Yeah. Uh, but I'm like hours of days like yeah. like like when I'd have it Saturday like just rewind 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 like and figuring this mm-hmm. out and like you know or like on the drums like you know like the, uh, the Omar Hakim and yes. Dennis Chambers played on those records. Yeah, I didn't know. At the time, I, I can I, see I Omar in you actually. Huge, yeah, yeah, hugely. And then through that, like, yeah. I I went to the uh, the our local music store, and the guy Jimmy that his long his long since died now. Yeah. Uh, he was old when I was little, but like, he always like believed in me too, and he gave me like an Omar DVD. Yeah, that basically became like the Bible that I would even teach from because as a kid, like, I was like the music kid around, and like. People that would ask me for lessons and, <laughs> and stuff. I would, I taught like a couple other kids and like a, a grown up or two the guitar and yeah. drums and stuff. But Omar's video, I think, would be it was Omar, and he gave me a Buddy Rich one. Yeah, and those basically yeah. became like my BS Bible for yes. like you know <laughs> trying to explain yeah. what I was hearing yes. to other people to learn what you already knew. I mean that that's what I'm hearing right. you say. It's like you sort yes. of knew that you had this somehow. You had found a lot of this stuff the fact that the cat heard you play and said you kind of sound like Jocko what is that if you never heard Jocko before <laughs> where well, is that you know, coming from it maybe I I would have to guess that that is like a three-way osmosis yes. like because Jocko a guy that like Jocko influenced every bass player that came totally after him so he definitely influenced guys that were playing on like DC Talk records, yes. uh, you know, mm-hmm. and like DC Talk was like a Christian super band. Yeah. Like uh, uh, I think they were based out of Nashville, that kind of mm-hmm. like thing. But yeah. they were kind of real crossover. They had like this huge hit, Jesus Freak. Uh-huh. Like what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus Freak? Oh wow! <laughs> it was like an epic, like maybe the biggest. Yeah. 
<laughs> song of like a, a, a decade, like easily. And like I, I think it won like a crossover. It may have right. like won a Grammy or something. Right. Even like it was like epic. The only thing I can guess what that is is that like those the session guys that they were bringing in to do their records were influenced by like yeah. that, and maybe that comes through. Yeah, because I remember all those bass lines and yeah. notes and sure. flurries and and again my ears were like that's that's yeah. my only gift and putting a na- learning w- what you already know that that's always yeah you know I, my whole my whole life is like filling in filling in trying to look you know mm-hmm. get a better microscope you know right, you find will. a word for it find yeah. a name for it like i remember like you know i have perfect pitch and mm-hmm. uh, or just really good pitch memory mm-hmm. i guess and uh that's a great thing to say, by the way. That's an, a very interesting distinction to me. Yeah. Perfect pitch versus pitch memory. You know, everything has pitch. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's it's something that yeah. I, uh, I've i always innately recognized, you know, yeah. from like hospital beeps and, <laughs> right. you know, alarms and car horns and like, you know, car doors closing. Is that a burden? I always wonder about that. With like, Every time you hear an ambulance go by, you're thinking about what I think for saying. some people it is. For me, it's just like it's over there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I think about it. But right, in the same way that these are lights are yellow. We know they're yellow. We're not thinking about the fact that they're yellow. We yeah, like if I think them. about it, like the vent here is yeah. like it's kind of like hovering around between an F and an F sharp. <laughs> But it's not like my brain is occupied with it right now. It's not dis- <laughs> right. distracting me. If it were loud, then maybe. yeah. But it's not loud in my brain. I think some people, maybe it is. That, for example, when I was a kid, I was just as much aware, but I didn't know note names mm-hmm. to call it. And so the, since the beginning, it's just literally been that, like once how to put what what this means and mm-hmm. how to translate it yeah. to, you know, my my surroundings and other people. <laughs> when did you decide you wanted you were going to go to Berkeley though? So my uh, Chris Crumley, my uh, high school band director, who I had spent a lot of time with, uh, he literally was at my high school for the four years that I was there. Uh-huh. He came with me and left with me. But after um, you were done, he said, "I, <laughs> I've done all I can do." <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> he and Tom Smith, those two guys, were the two advocates telling me I needed to get out of Berkeley. And yeah. a little bit my, my chorus teacher. I mean, I mean, get out of North Stanley Carolina. County. Yeah. And a little bit my, my chorus teacher, too, my Miss Aza Hudson. She's, I, I haven't mentioned her yet in the story, but she is such a ray of sunshine and purity and the epitome of, of bringing elegance and high art to a small town. Where Making, being a, able to translate it into a way to, like, give it to... Give it in a way people can, can use it. Yeah. But anyways, the really mainly, primarily, Chris Crumley and Tom Smith were like, you need to get out of Stanley County, which was a big deal because, you know, my my mom was not a fan of that. <laughs> um, hmm. Not at that time, you know. She felt like if you're 18, like you're still a baby, you know. And you were Which, in a lot of ways. It's I not was. what you described. There's a, a lot sheltered. of validity to that. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Uh, I think Mr. Crumley gave me, he ordered two brochures. One was Juilliard and one was Berkeley. I'd never heard of either. When you got these brochures, what instrument were you going to go and audition on to Juilliard or Berkeley? That's <laughs> where it flipped, where I was like, I basically was like, I saw that it was an option. To go to school for bass or drums, 
I did not know it pre prior to reading this brochure. Again, light bulb. Oh, Super man. light bulb. <laughs> Super light bulb. I think I was sitting in the den when I read this, and I saw subsequently the. Uh, so after getting that, after that, the the ringer giving me those two yeah. CDs. Yeah. Uh, I somehow I got my hands on the Jacko video, right? Maybe through the Jimmy at the music store. Yeah. Again. Which is funny because like it was like. Schofield, yeah, and, and yes, and Kimmel Denard, yes, who are now both dear friends of mine, and we've both played in bands together. And Amazing! It's really a cool full circle moment. But I rec when I I saw that Kim would taught at Berkeley, uh huh, and so that was it for me. I was like, what the guy from the Jacko video? Like, I can go take lessons with, with him, I ne- and I never had lessons at all. So that was a big part of yeah. like my reasoning. Eighteen year old me, like. In my mind, you know, so you, you maybe I had a little ego too because I, and Tom Smith will tell you he loves to tell the story of how I came in saying that I, uh, when I went, when I went to ask him to play with the college wind ensemble yeah. as like little seventh or eighth grade me, yeah, I walked in and told him that I'd mastered the trombone, oh. <laughs> so maybe there's a little of that too. My thinking was like I I genuinely believed that I had maxed out everything that I could do like on my own i'd watch like the buddy rich videos and i can do really fast single strokes you know it's like you know and i watched the omar step and like you know i can think about rhythms like a conga player because his mm-hmm. uncle found about rhythms like a conga player and i don't know um well one thing i will say if we're going to talk about that for a second is watching you play drums is unusual to me Really, I think so. I think you you seem to have a light, a very light touch, especially in your right hand on the hi hat. I find you to be very gentle about the way you approach it. I see it in you, and when you talk about this idea of how at some point in your development you got into the idea of which maybe this is an Omar thing, I don't know, of playing drums as if you're a hand drummer. Hmm. Maybe that's part. Maybe that's part of it. Not necessarily. I think that part. It's, do you know what I'm talking light, about, though? This, light, I, I this do. lightness. I do, and I'm gonna. I'll, I'll tell you exactly where that happened in my evolution. If we fast forward to like Berkeley days and then beyond Berkeley, I, I did two semesters at Berkeley, and then as a drummer or a bass player, uh, well, I was trying <laughs> to do both, but they didn't allow both at the time. So I took bass lessons until like they realized the glitch in the system, and then I just stopped showing up because I didn't, you know, couldn't afford it. It's hard to say because I didn't get a lot of drum lessons either because my teacher was out. Uh, Who was your from, teacher? Uh, Jackie Santos. Love you, Jackie. <laughs> but so it was just a weird. It was a weird year. It was a weird year um, for personal reasons. For for uh, both. It reasons? was. I mean, it was like I I went to get lessons and I wasn't really getting lessons and the lessons I was getting like I mean he didn't. I don't think he felt like he had much anything to show me. But although he did, one of the only lessons I remember getting from him, he gave me the uh, RH Factor record, mm-hmm. which ended up being. Huge. What I got from him, like I just, you know, I delved into that for like ages. So you, how old are you? At this point, I'm like 18. How old are you at this? At this oh, right now? Moment right now. Oh, I'm 32. You're 32. Yeah. Right. So the RH that makes sense. So the RH factor was a new record at that time. I guess so. Yeah. Another another one that I luck a really yeah. funny full circle moment because Jason Thomas, who really and I've told him this, like you know, on a road trip, I did yeah. some dates with. His band, him and Henry Hayes band, Fork. Oh, yeah. Uh, over a few months back. And I told him, like, he's super 
was one of the, the main influences on like my drumming once I started like you know like in form formative years and then like because that was the first time I started hearing the music that I was gonna be that I turns out I was really drawn to. Was that year groove based? Because I didn't have like groove based music growing up. Time based, you know, like pop is like you know. It was about time, like, but like feel and funk, I didn't have, you know, but I immediately gravitated toward it. Right. Anyways. So, yeah. I digress. Right hand thing you're talking about. Yeah. Those two semesters, I had a weird year and I was, I was always gigging and make and supporting myself. And then also my oldest daughter was born. Wow. Later that year. Well, she was wow. born uh, a few months before I turned 20. So I was uh -huh. 19. She was born in Boston? She was born in Colorado. Uh -huh. I met her mother in, in Boston. Uh -huh. So a combination of personal and all that was, and yeah. and then just like financially not being able to justify it. I told myself that I was learning like just by doing, because like, it was all brand new to me still. I was like, so I, 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 was, I, I don't want to go too deep into it if you don't want to, but you went to Berkeley not knowing much about men and women and life beyond the church and you not at all and you by the time you were 20 you had a daughter absolutely you can fill in those blanks and you are correct <laughs> no you're you're right on but moving the, on the right hand stuff yeah at that i told myself that i was when i left school that i was going to continue to learn and you know my parents weren't super psyched about me like Taking a semester off as I as it started, mm -hmm. <laughs> I never went back. Right, so you're still on that semester off right yes. now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Twelve years yeah. later, fifteen years later, how many years? Fifteen years later, yeah. <laughs> so okay, so let's figure out how this what this has to do with the right hand. I have so a so this we is, may never answer it because every I know time, it's it so getting, much in there. We yeah. had to skip. Yeah, we were so in depth know, with all I this know, stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, well, should I pick up this and point out to that? And it's relevant because I purposed to continue to learn. Uh, you left Berkeley, but I'm still learning. When I left Berkeley, I was like, as long as I keep learning and growing, yeah. then I'm going to be accomplishing what I want to, what yeah. I came to accomplish anyways. Yes. And so I was playing at Wally's Jazz yeah. Club, uh, which is jazz club, but it was like every night was a different thing. And fast forwarding to the learning piece, I would record myself playing. Yeah. When guys would come through and sit in that were like light years beyond yeah. Uh, anything that I knew. Yeah. And I would go and try to play that same groove that I heard like this guy play yeah. and it sound totally different. Yeah. And so I would record myself at those gigs and then go back and listen to it and then analyze it. So one thing I've learned was that I was not playing necessarily for a sound, but with an energy. I always, which, you know, it, which is valid. That informs like my a lot of as yeah. a big part of my identity but i also i didn't enjoy the way i sounded yeah because i wasn't playing for a sound as yeah. it turned out so the right hand thing like i'm right-handed so that's gonna be strong and when you're playing hi-hat it's like you know that's gonna be and when you get excited like that's gonna be it's just physics you know and i and the, my left hand subsequently didn't have when there's less control it's gonna be more natural. So the right hand is gonna be stronger. The left hand is gonna be less consistent. Did you ever think about opening up? Uh, no. My approach was to build control. So that was just my approach. You know, the the right hand thing you're talking about, like being like, come from like hours and months of very focused purpose because I didn't like the way I sounded. To re I, to kind of rebalance the sound when you played. Yeah, and that's when I started mixing myself. Mm -hmm. That's a thing, man. That is a thing. Mix yourself. 
Yeah. You put one microphone over the drums. If you're playing and you're mixing yourself, there all the sounds are yeah, there. Yeah, I have a I have a C two fourteen in the corner back there. Uh-huh. And sometimes that's like the only mic that I'll yeah. use because I'm already playing it the way I want to hear it. That's it was very purposeful, like just like double stops. Yeah. Slow and slow and steady. Like I went I went through a period of like my self education here where I'm like, you know, all right, all right, so I'm gonna I'm only gonna play what I hear. So which is my way of like learning to specifically play for a sound and and not just as a slave to a phys as a physical mm-hmm. drum as a physical thing like playing it as an instrument because I didn't like the way that I sounded and I'll never forget man those first few weeks was just like you know I was gigging a lot yeah and Wally's was like you know the first set's like an hour and a half yeah. or something and I would make it through like the first like two minutes of the first song and then what revert to your other thing and or? then yeah it's just like well, screw this! I yeah. <laughs> I gotta like I gotta I gotta play. Yeah, you know. But eventually, I start to do it, and like then you start to have to pay attention to what you hear and what you want to hear and the way you want to hear it, and you're making decisions, not necessarily what comes naturally. It's influenced by what comes naturally, but I was at that time I went completely the opposite direction and was just playing what I want to hear. So it starts like having to think about what are my ideas and, like, what kind of groove does this energy need? Yeah. And, like, do I want, like, a rim shot on every backbeat? And if I do, can I control that? If I really want to do that, I'm going to take out the hi-hat and just do that until I can control that, you know? But challenging myself to do it, like, in live playing situations was, yes. like, a big yes. part for me. So all that, just the 40-minute the version of the explanation of why my right hand... It's often like that. Okay, so now I'm going to use that drum development story as a way to pivot because... Nice. I mean, I know that we can go... (laughs) I understand. At some point early on in your 20s, you find yourself backstage at the Montreux Jazz Festival. North Sea. It was a jam session Uh at the North Sea Jazz Festival. Okay, so tell me me what happened. I was on tour with Robin McHale, a great jazz singer. How old were you? Um, 21. So you're still living in Boston. Still living in Boston. Gigging? Yes, I was gigging a lot. Self. Robin had just signed with Blue Note uh-huh. France, and so she was doing a lot of... At the time, she was really more like... It was kind of like jazz trio. Yeah. And you had figured out how to play jazz somewhere along the way. Yeah. You know, the big band, like... Yeah. You know, had the, like the Buddy Rich thing. And right. So, like... Yep, you had But that. I, I didn't have any combo concept, jazz in yeah. my concept at all. But I got exposed when I when I moved to Boston when I was eighteen. That was when like MacBooks were still like, you know, you could still like see everybody's music like in the vicinity and download it <laughs> to your your computer. Yeah. So I would sit like in the lobby of the main Berkeley building or the dorms and like just like grab a bunch of stuff. And I would go to everyone I met and like give me all your music. So who were you who'd you hear? Who'd you listen to that that kinda opened you up in that sense? Miles, Podcasts. kind of blue and herbie. I got um Imperial Isles, mm-hmm. I think it yeah. is. Uh so Tony Tony was huge. Yeah. And actually Kenny Garrett's triology. I mean I kinda went backwards. Yeah. I first I think got Kenny's triology. Sure. Which is which like Brian Blade and yeah. Seanette Moffat, I think. And that was like my dictionary. Yeah. When Robin started doing like the jazz trio you were thing. thinking about Brian. 
I was, I was, no, completely. A hundred percent. I was thinking about Brian. Yeah. I, I was just picking it apart the best I could. Yeah. You know, he would do like a, a little thing that like sparked my attention. Yeah. So I'd do that, like, let's learn it, mm -hmm. like, kind of like, there's recordings of that and it's like really in educational for me to listen to because it took a, a long time for me to connect like these little bits and pieces of vocabulary to like my human element if that makes sense sure because <laughs> it's such a language you know it's and all those guys had lessons and where it was like broken down in the books and they can you know rudiments and i just had a little bit of that <laughs> just i take bits and pieces you know oh and at that time i also got Ahmad Jamal's like live at the live Pershing. At Pershing man it was huge for me that's huge for one, me man. I was just like that's, that was when I was like alright I'm a field drummer because mm -hmm. <laughs> this is this is activating all of my oh, fulfilling everything that I it's all of it it's it's sophisticated feel my six year old that's what she falls asleep to every night are you she serious go, and I put it on for her oh one time. my gosh she listens to it for two years she listens to it every night and I tried after a year I was like okay here's this is a record called Kind of Blue I don't want that put the other one back on and wow! Time, I was like, "This is Bill Evans. I don't want that. I want the other one. I want a my Jamal. She only serious? wants that because I think it's hypnotic." It's like that's amazing. It's just, you dude. melt, man. Yeah, that. Vernell Fournier. I know. And what happened to him, man? Who uh, is you that know, guy? he's some cat from New Orleans. Yeah, I think he just died like in the last like ten years or something. Wow. Joe Saylor could tell you. I could literally call to... him right now, and he would tell me the exact, the exact history. Well, maybe let's finish up, and if we yeah. have five minutes, we'll call Joe, and we'll, we'll ask him that question. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay, I love that that record turned, was like a, a thing for you, because it was for me, too. It really it really was. Yeah, I literally, Robin did an arrangement of Make Someone Happy, uh -huh. and I was like, I should do the points. Yeah, I didn't do under with a mallet. And yeah. Like, like, it was super creative to me at the time, because that's what it was turning me on. But like, yeah. So you were on the road... With her, I was on the road with Robin, and I went to the the jam session at North Sea, and Marcus was playing. I sat in with Marcus, and uh, and we ended up playing like the last hour together. Like, and were you hip to him? Did you know about Marcus a little bit at that point? Or I was hip to him. I got hip to him really early on uh, when I moved to Boston. Yeah, one of the first um, recordings I made. I, I'd gotten M squared, uh -huh. and this was like right when I I was fresh into Boston, like still yeah. at Berkeley, Boston, yeah. and I had heard Nikki's groove, mm -hmm. and I I don't think I ever told Marcus this, but uh, I had learned it, and I loved it so much, I recorded it, like, and I recorded myself playing like bass, drums, and guitar of <laughs> that song. So you jammed with him, and obviously he liked what it felt like to play with you. Yeah, we had a vibe. It was great. And then maybe a year... Actually, it was a few years after that. That would have been summer of 2007. It was the beginning of 2010, or the end of 2009, when he called me. And in the interim, you had moved to New York? In 08. Uh-huh. Marcus called, like, I think it was the end of 2009, because it was the beginning of 2010 when I started touring with him. When we were doing the 2-2 Revisited. Yes. I mean, that's such a major thing. Like, did you... you would know, you like a spot of tea? I would love some tea. Thank you. That would be lovely. Absolutely. Michael said you're living the smoothie and espresso lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, listen. I got to know, because 
you know, this is at this point I've, I'm giving up. I'm staying linear here. So you, <laughs> so you're in the juice place every day. You have been. Yeah. When we tried to set this up, it's always been morning because you have like a whole other gig that you have to deal with. Yeah. I get the sense that you that well, the Colbert show is a lot of work. It is. Well, it, 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 both those things are true. It is a lot of work. It's, the time commitment now is it moves around. It, it, most normal <laughs> challenge is like the inconsistency of uh-huh. the of the specific time. Like we're in a thing now where normally we have to show up like about like for like a three thirty uh or three o'clock or three thirty yeah. like rehearsal. Yeah. And what time right? do you guys take? Five thirty? Uh yes. But, you know, at a moment's notice, like it's not as moments notice as it usually right. sometimes it is but but nowadays it could be like at a few days notice like it may it may be like you have to be there at like noon instead of right. like three. Which like, you know, if you're, you have to move things around but then you might get there at noon or and then like and then it turns out like you didn't need to be there. Yeah. Generally it's like three to seven, three to seven. Yeah, right now, yeah. It's like oh, generally it's bad. kinda like three thirty to seven thirty now. That's not bad. Ish. Yeah. Give or take depending on that particular show. This is part of the reason I'm asking you about how you, how you are getting it all done because the only way I can get anything done is if I take on too much. I feel that way. It is a constant thing, man, because it's like the good news is I'm getting a lot done. Yeah. And at the end of the week, the year, whatever, I look and I'm like, look, you know. There's something to show for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have something to show for my energy and my efforts. And yeah. and at the same time, it's just that constant, exactly what you were just saying. Like, hey, man, can we push it back a half hour because I'm just trying to do this thing? And and I hate being that guy, but I also just know that that's the only way things yeah. work. And, and also, I need to commit to it. Otherwise, it's not going to get done. And Exactly. I also feel like a big part of what I'm doing actually can't be described so easily because when you have a, a family and you're trying to show up, that's a big time commitment and it's a big emotional commitment. And yes, it doesn't even have anything to do with any of what we're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of my story, too, is like just pushing against that grain to like try to balance these seemingly yes. opposing worlds. Yes. And so, kind of the rhythm that I've been in now is that, I, because of the show, like I'm, I would typically would miss bedtime anyways. Yeah. So, I do mornings with yeah. her. You know, um, I, I take her into school, like have her there by eight thirty, and I'm here like with food by like nine usually, and like you know ready to go. And you can do a good four or five hours before you have to go in. Yeah, exactly. But then you're out with Bobby McFerrin, you're doing dates. Like, I also see you're playing gigs. Um, Not as much. I mean, yeah, uh, here and there. Yeah. Since coming on to the show in 15, uh, in 2015, uh, not as much. Um, and that was, a, that was a choice, a conscious choice a to conscious stay choice. home, be yeah. off the road. That's a part of this gig. <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, unfortunate in some aspects of... Things come up from time to time. I mean, for the most part, like, it's been a, a natural progression because I don't necessarily see myself going back into Super Sideman world. And you were in there, man. I was deep in there. I was deep in there. So the whole time that you were in Super Sideman zone, mm-hmm. on the one hand, it had to be incredible. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I hear you saying that there was a part of you that felt that maybe it wasn't, you weren't representing your best self doing that or that you later in, on the on the later side of it so after the accident i was in tour bus accident with marcus i did not know that i don't know anything about this it's a, it's a major turning point in my in my evolution 
actually, because um, the driver died. I, I broke my back. Where was it? Where, uh, where was in, it? Right about 20 minutes outside of Zurich, Switzerland. Um, How many people were in the bus? There were 11 of us. What year the driver was, was the only one that died. Um, this was the end of no- November of 2012. The driver died. You broke your back. Mm-hmm. In Switzerland. Sprained my neck. Cracked a couple ribs, bruised some other bones, and had a concussion. And I was on bed rest for ten weeks after that. And your to, chi- and your child was just born. Yeah, she was born March of that year. <laughs> that was a major turning point. Uh, that was actually kind of when I moved. I had been up in New, in New York up until that time, but I was touring so much. My my stuff was in storage, and that ended the tour. And I I, right. I flew back to Boston instead of New York because my now wife mm-hmm. was living and, and our our baby were living in Boston because her mom was in Boston. So while I was gone, she had the support of her mom. And uh, I recovered there and, and I, I went back on the road in February of that, that next year. How long did you go without being able to play? Ten weeks, but I cheated. I cheated like uh, twice. Schofield had a New Year's Eve gig it just so happened to be in Boston. And I was already in Boston recovering and really needed the money. <laughs> and it was Schofield. And it was at Berkeley. I was like, I have to do this. And I know I know, I can. Much to my family's mm-hmm. chagrin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, trust me, guys. I've been playing drums since before I could walk. I, I know how to do this. I hired a tech. I was going to ask you, did you have, to, that's the biggest yeah, thing. Yeah, I couldn't like, yeah, 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 I couldn't like, I mean, everything was backlined, but yeah. uh, even like adjusting cymbal stands, I You couldn't it was, do it. Was, was you painful. could only sit down and play. Yeah. How did that affect your life, man? Not just your, not just your day-to-day life, but just how did it affect what you wanted for yourself? Well, I started thinking about it, uh, things a lot differently. It went hand in hand with uh, having, just starting touring with Bobby McFerrin at that yeah. time, with Gil. Yeah. Which was significant because... Joining Bobby's band was the most natural version of myself, like that I got to be in Sideman world. Like meaning, like where, but instead of like being called to like play bass or being called to play guitar or being called to play drums, it was like we're called for you. What do you want to play on this? Play on this, like, and initially, like Gil wanted me to have like a bass and a guitar if I want, and a and a you know and whatever. It ended up settling on um. You know, I brought a bunch of stuff to, like, the first rehearsal, which was the only rehearsal, <laughs> and it lasted, like, an hour. Bobby, like, <laughs> came in for, like, an hour and was like, yeah, we're good. It was the first time that I, you know, like you said, I got called for me, and I had freedom to explore that. And Bobby is a very, like, inviting presence and energy, and, you know, he's a master himself, so there's no ego mm-hmm. <laughs> there, really, you know, um, which was... A wonderful place for me to yes explore my identity, yeah, and and it was the first time like maybe in like in like as a result of finding like the most natural things that I didn't I it didn't feel like a gig as much, and also because of the interpersonal relationships there, it felt like a family. I was welcomed like to be me. I found that early on, like from like the first show, the only prerequisite as I saw it was to show up. Bobby was had the energy that like if you're here, it's because I trust. I I perceive a level of musicianship, or in this case, Gil, who brought me on 
Because Gil had met you in Poland. Yes. And he suggested, he said, this is a guy that would be a good fit here. I yes. Think. Yeah, that's so interesting, man. I talked to Baptiste years ago for this podcast. And, oh, nice. And he's, to John. And he said, um, we talked about being a sideman. Mm-hmm. One thing that he did say was, in his experience being a sideman, he said, you know, if you are the kind of band leader who needs to give a lot of direction then you need to find musicians to be in your band that want to take a lot of direction. And if you're the kind of leader that doesn't want to have to say too much, then the right fit for you are sidemen who don't need to hear too much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but it was basically that. that. Yeah, Yeah, that that sounds like his concept. (laughs) And I know there's a lot of versions of that, but the best version of it for me is when I hear a story like this. There's something that's being communicated by the leader, whether it's a producer or the band leader, whoever it is, which is I think I have good judgment and I judge to have you in the room, which means you don't have to do anything other than be in the room and do whatever is the natural thing. And you can feel confident in that because that's what the job is, is to be yourself. Yes. And when that's presented in the right way, there's nothing better than that. Yeah, I think for optimum creativity. Yeah. Absolutely. And let no fear, no ego. No fear, no ego. Yeah. My earliest conceptions of being a producer was that I I figured the most important thing I needed to, to do was to get the right people in the room in the first place. And yep. then that was like, yep. the rest was like the last 10%. Yep. You know? But the 90% is just deciding and figuring like what the right energy is like for this. My my friend Blair Wells and I, who's um tribe and Q-tips mm-hmm. engineer, we've been working together for eight or nine years now. We, we have a thing where we, we can discuss and we're basically that, that, Producing is like in music school. You you should basically have to take. It should be like a psychology course <laughs> for some artists, especially creatives in general. Like that that part is almost more important than having experience. It's kind of funny that you mentioned that. You know, one of the big relationships is the one with and around Q Tip and Tribe, and yeah, and like again, c- considering you, that music meant nothing to you growing up. Like you came to that later. Didn't hear it until later and much later. Like at the time when I started working with Tip, I I had I was doing homework before I went because I didn't know. Were you listening to hip hop at, at that point? A little. Bit. Uh yeah. Well, at the time I was touring with Talib Kweli. Uh huh. Um, oh. And so that that had been like a bit of my working introduction into hip hop. Another one that like I quickly like you know I didn't grow up with, but found a a, a quick connection to. Just yes internally oh yeah so speaking of which bringing it back bobby world like that was the beginnings of a culmination of Mm -hmm. all of my different pockets of worlds for sure and when i after the accident and starting in bobby world yeah was when i really i'd been like tinkering with songwriting co-writing before but that was when i really delved in deeply and when when John Batiste called you to work on the theme song for the the show, mm-hmm. it does. It sounds like he also kind of called you for you. He didn't call you for a specific thing. He called yeah. You. I think his exact words were like, "Man, I would love to have <laughs> just have your ears on it." 
That sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) But I ended up, you know, producing it and mixing it and arranging it. And uh, I I played all the instruments. Yeah. Except for uh, uh, sax, Eddie. Yeah. And I think Joe played tambo on it. How did you connect with John Batiste? Then. That's when he called you? He called me. When he called me was the first conversation. How did he know to call you? I think you had to ask him. But the, the running story is that. He, uh, which is like a combination of bits and pieces of people's memories, uh, is that he saw me play Wally's Days because he went to the five-week program at Berkeley. As, as when he was like in high school, uh, he went to like the summer five-week program. And, and he's like two years younger which, than you. Yeah, he's like a year and a half younger yeah. than me, I think. Well, what did he, he just turned 30 last year? Wow. Yeah, I guess so. I guess he's a couple years younger than me. Yeah, um, it's funny because I always got the sense, even from Michael, that you were like the old guy that they brought in. You know, like we brought we brought in one adult ringer into the band, and you're like just like two years older than than them. It's definitely the vibe. I they feel treat like you like they treat you like the adult, the like elder them. statesman. Because also, I mean, just experientially, like you know, a lot of those, a lot of them, like focused on John's. Man, thing. I think about and that with Joe I, I just, so much. I think for, yeah. for Joe particularly, like Joe's whole sideband development is happening in the context of John Batiste. Like he and stay, yeah. and stay human. That is like his, he's playing with. I see him out every now and then playing with all these people, yeah. Grammys or whatever. And it's like, man, yeah, what an interesting way to become a sideman. Yeah, is in the context of a band. It's actually that's a re- really great way of noting how unique. That is because, uh, I mean, it's not so uncommon for like non-jazz musicians to like find their sound and identity in bands. Right. But for jazz musicians, especially, it's like yes, yeah. Normally, it's like different thing. And he had other things too. Uh, yeah. You know, that he's a he's a uh, Lincoln Center darling. You know. Oh, he's a great musician. So you were the elder statesman. You had been side manning it up, and well, yeah. And- I, they, they like they still ask me questions like is this cool like should we how is this when your experience like you know just because i'm like i said i'm not i'm 32 but i've i've done a lot of stuff there was times when i would do like a, a you know a month with george duke and then go home for like two days and then go do like six weeks with marcus mm. and then maybe not go home and then like just fly from like Japan to China and hop over to like a Schofield run and do 30 days with Sco and like then go home for two weeks and then go Bobby for another couple weeks and like you know then maybe go from Bobby to like a snarky run and like I was bouncing around a lot um for some some years so it came a lot of experience I guess how did you connect with Michael League uh I met him at my house um, he was doing a rehearsal. Uh, we when I first moved to New York, I moved in a house with like six other musicians. Mike League was rehearsing with Corey Bernhardt for mm-hmm. something. I don't even know what, but they were in my basement. I, I, I met them. I was coming home and they were walking out and finishing. And like, I was like, oh, and we talked in the street for a while, you know, and then ended up. Uh, you know, playing together. Um, he he started doing these like uh, family dinner things, yeah. like uh, which was like the original incarnations, where it was just like he would get a night at Rockwood and get like three singers, and we would learn like uh, like we would just each singer would bring like two songs, so like 
like there's like six songs or something yeah. that we would like learn on our own and the concept was like no rehearsal and we'd play them for the first time huh. on stage yeah and that was like the family dinner yeah <laughs> and then some snarky runs and stuff and Sput didn't move to New York when the rest of them did so well, so they needed drummers here yeah so I ended up doing most of the stuff in New York around that time they've come to really resonate so deeply yeah. all over the world you know and it's yeah. become a phenomenon and Mike League is like an unstoppable and yeah. energetic force of yeah he really is you know he really is yeah I mean I gotta I mean that 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 whole story is really encouraging to me actually because um just it's been one thing that a lot a, a, a lot of other people that I was working with by the time I started working with them I was like the young guy and yeah. they had they were older and established, you know, and that was one story that I got to see from, right? You know, literally like us, like trucking around in a in a van, like you know, taking turns, like who's gonna sleep on the floor of the van, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, to uh, you know, sharing rooms and motels, you know, just be for like no money because we believe in the music and 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 and. Watching all of that dedication, hard work, kind of progress to uh, something that's internationally recognized. It's a testament to. Uh, it's encouraging for me. It's a testament to drive and like and and you know belief in music and doing stuff like not for the money, but because you believe in it. And it's the fine line we walk, especially with the responsibility. You know, it's yeah. Like, where where what's the balance that you can live with that's you know? t for me that's a lot of when you bring responsibility into it for me that's a lot of the reason i feel like i have to do too much you know or to make it yeah. work like the thing like like i'm not at a, at least at, at this point i'm not in a place where i can afford to just do passion projects and just invest i have people depending on me so Financially, so the um, you got to do too much to get it done. To get it done, yeah. And I think, and, and I'm working towards a place where, yeah, ideally, like it finds a stride. I know, I definitely know people that have gotten to that uh, uh, that sort of place. Like where who? Russ Elevato comes to mind. Mm -hmm. He uh, he he recorded uh, a lot of those legendary Soul Quarians records, uh -huh. like D'Angelo's Voodoo yeah. and Erica Badu's yeah, Mama's yeah, yeah. Gun and. He basically works the way he wants to. Yeah. Nowadays, or like uh, uh, Schofield. Yeah. He's a great example. Man, we talked about so much stuff. I thank you, Louis. <laughs> yeah, Cato, man. For taking the morning with me and letting me into the room and into the world. Man, yeah, welcome. <laughs> this is an inspiring story, man. Dude, I hopefully so. It's still being, still being written. <laughs> yeah, it's in your reach, though, man. It's hey! Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, full circle. Yeah, we did it. You gotta always find a way. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta find a way. There he was, Louis Cato. What a guy. What a hang. What a scene. And I'll be back next week with another great one. Really, I have a couple in the can that you are not going to want to miss. Visit third-story.com to sign up. Find the socials, patronize, the whole thing. 
I'll be back next week. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.